context and inform those other many conversations that are going on about shepherding in uh, the Churches of Christ right now. So my name is Tiffany Dahlman. I am on a leadership team, we call it, and if we had titles like that, I would be the pulpit minister at Courtyard Church of Christ in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I went to Asbury Theological Seminary for my MDiv, and I'm in the Demon program at ACU right now, and my area of emphasis is wisdom Christology, kind of restoring wisdom as this lost virtue in the modern church. Uh, but this idea of shepherding and just being pastoral has really been on my heart lately. So when Mike asked me to teach a class, I thought, why not? Let's go with this. So some things are going to be detailed on the slides, just breaking it down for you, really obvious. And other things, I'm going to let the Spirit reveal to you. What do you hear here about good shepherding, bad shepherding with David, or uh, what Jesus is teaching? So are we ready? If you are an elder, in that official traditional sense, in a church, raise your hand. Does that apply to anyone in here? Okay, wow, well, more than I thought. What about the title elder, or I'm sorry, the title shepherd? If you would apply that title shepherd to yourself, however you define that to be, raise your hand. Yeah, and there's some, I don't know, maybe, am I? Not quite sure. And, and that's really the premise of this class is if you are a Christian of any measure of maturity, we're going with the assumption that you are a shepherd. You are, even if you're a parent, you are a shepherd over your children. That's what you're doing. You're feeding them. You're nurturing them. You're guiding them. You're protecting them. Maybe you are a facilitator in um, a small group that meets in your home. Maybe you are in a mentoring relationship. Maybe you're in a men's discipleship group, a Sunday school teacher, in any measure of ways. We who are Christ followers are shepherds. That's what we're doing. So the question then evolves, not am I a shepherd, but am I a good one? That's the question we're trying to unearth and, and answer and work with this afternoon. Am I a good one? So I have to take this off. This space is the only space, I think, that doesn't have a lapel mic. You have to stay with the microphone, so I'm going to walk with it instead of standing still. Uh, about 20 years ago, my husband had a really bad two weeks. He, uh, we, we were in the black ops world of, uh, we're in Fayetteville, North Carolina, where Fort Bragg is for many, many years, and this was the beginning of his career and was going through the Q course, the qualification course for that. The very end at Robin Sage, if you're familiar with how that works, and he got recycled at Robin Sage. Some story about a squirrel in a tree with camo wires we just do not talk about, and that happened, and it just devastated him. Um, and as happened was typical then, if you recycled at any point during the Q course, you immediately got orders to Korea to go to the DMZ for a year unaccompanied, which means your family doesn't go with you. And sure enough, within 48 hours, those orders came down. But about three days before that, I had miscarried our fifth pregnancy, and that one had gone on further than the others, so there was a heartbeat, and he really took that harder than the other ones. And then... Two days before he was supposed to deploy to Korea, or move there, really, to Korea, his dad unexpectedly passed away. So by the time he got on the plane, he said, I'm done. There is no God. It's all random. I'm done with this Christianity thing. I'm out. And so I got to work, right? I'm going to shepherd him back to Jesus. This is what I'm going to do. And so I'm writing him letters after letter, uh, all the Bible verses I could find on why you should believe in Jesus, because someone who no longer believes the Bible is the word of God, that's the best approach to use, right? I mean, it made sense to me. didn't work. Um, it was about the time Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, came out. You know, so I mailed that to him, because that's going to bring him back to Jesus. didn't work either. So when none of that worked, then I resorted to uh, begging and pleading and anger. You promised me that we were going to be in this Christian marriage together. Didn't work either. Um, quite a long time went on. And I'll tell you the end of that story at the end. But as we go through and hear what David informs and, and what Jesus informs, have a shepherding scenario in your mind. The one that just breaks your heart into confetti. Maybe it's that adult child who's lost out on the rocks and the rills, 
who believed in Jesus, but you can't bring him back in, or, or maybe it's going well, someone in your congregation that you're shepherding, who you know, you're just in this great relationship, and they're the one who make your heart melt. Have that scenario in your mind to help you cross that bridge from the text to, to application to where we are. And I'm going to begin with the 23rd Psalm. Nobody groan, I know. But I want us to look at the 23rd Psalm in a way um, that, that isn't about death, that's not about being a sheep, but have it with this lens of shepherding. Because we're not going to stay here long, but what I think it reveals is that David knew what he was doing at one point. David was really a decent shepherd. He understood what shepherding well means. Because you can see in the 23rd Psalm, he knew that sheep needed a rhythm of rest and pasturing. They needed to lay beside those still waters, and they needed to have that food. He understood that. He understood what oil was for, that sheep needed anointing and for healing. He understood to have a rod and a staff. And isn't it interesting? He uses the word comfort there. Your rod and your staff, they do what? Comfort me. Is that how we're using the rod and staff in our shepherding in a way that the sheep say, that comforted me? And at the end of the day, when David completed his work exhausted and looked out at the grandeur of the universe, he understood his place within all of it. He knew that God was the capital G, good shepherd. He was the king of the universe, and, and David was the created. And what begins to, to be introduced in here in the 23rd Psalm are these two words that kept recurring as I was preparing this, bravery and humility. Bravery and humility, this juxtaposition. So if you want to write anything down, I would put those two words on your paper. We're going to hear a few more as it goes through, but bravery and humility. But time moved on for David. He moved down from the crags of those hills up to the mountain of God through valleys of blood. Oil, once used to heal the wounds of sheep, was anointed over his head by the high priest. And slingshots shifted to targets of giants. Staffs were laid down for swords at Nob, and the search for stray sheep became a search for mighty men. And where David once bowed down to the king of the universe, kings of nations bowed down to, to him. And bit by bit, David's ability to shepherd well plummeted, really climaxing with the Bathsheba incident. We struggle with what even to call that anymore. Um, and I'm not going to get into 2 Samuel 11 and, and Bathsheba. I think Sarah's going to handle that well this evening. But I, I do want to say when we're preaching that or dealing with that text, it, it's not a text about adultery or modesty. It's a text about abuse of power and sexual exploitation. And here, there's so many lessons you could pull out for shepherding on that in, in the David and Bathsheba story. But I just want to focus on one of them, and it's this. Go back to chapter 16, 1 Samuel 16, and David is chosen to be the king. Remember how that went, and his dad is there, and they're calling in all the brothers. Randy Harris touched on this. You know, you're not the right one. You're not the right one. You're not the right one. And do you remember what, what Samuel said to his dad? Man looks at outward appearances, but God what? God looks at the heart, and David is chosen because of his inside. Not because of his rugged exterior, not because of his youth. You could look at that either way, chosen for all the good things about his appearance or the bad things. He's chosen for his heart. But in this very same leader, this same man who's chosen for his heart, grows up to be an objectifier of persons. He grows up to not only look at women's outward appearances, but to obsess over women's outward appearances to the neglect of the inside. He truly becomes an objectifier of persons. And this theme surprised me to come up not only with David, but through other leaders we see in Scripture. And when we get to John with Jesus, objectification, it keeps coming through. If I were to ask you, are you an objectifier of persons? not many of you would raise your hand. We think of objectification like, well, I didn't murder anybody like David did. I didn't do what he did with women 
I'm not objectifying anyone, but objectification is really more subtle than that. It can sneak up on you. I think it's a, a great tool of the enemy. It's very sneaky because anytime you're using people as a means to your end, you're objectifying them. If you're a youth minister and that youth group is your means to a pulpit ministry position, you're an objectifier of persons. And you may not even realize you're doing it at first. We were talking about the demon. If my congregation is the means to the end of my project thesis, I'm objectifying my congregation. If even in parenting, my kids are the means to my end of being known as a great mom and everyone thinking I'm a wonderful mom, I'm objectifying my kids. It can really sneak up on you and before you know it, you're objectifying people, which puts us squarely into that thief category of John 10, where Jesus talks about good shepherding. So ask yourself that question, am I objectifying the flock that God has put in front of me? Am I using them in some way, maybe even a way I don't even particularly recognize as objectification, but that's what I'm doing. They're my stepping stone to something else. My congregation, I'm going to give them these great sermons because they're going to be my stepping stone to the bigger church, to the church with a bigger salary. Are we objectifying people? Because if so, we're going to land where we don't want to be. So skip over, if you have a Bible with you, skip over to, to John 10. Um, oops, I don't know how to go back here. There we go. Um, in, in my years of being on a leadership team and... In ministry, I, I've noticed as you skip over there to John 10, um, that that tension is when my, my shepherding goes off the rails. We tend to go to John 10 when we want to learn how to be a good sheep, and it's a very good text to go to when you want to know how to be a good sheep. It's also a good text to go to when you want to know how to be a good shepherd. And we like to pick one or the other. Are we talking about sheep or are we talking about shepherding? Well, guess what? We're what? We're both. Yeah, you are both. You are just as much sheep as you are shepherd, and that's where the tension is. And, and we'll look at that further as we go on. But Jesus talks about three different kinds of characters here in John 10. What are they? Do you remember? The good shepherd, the hired hand, and the thief. Those are the three. This is a lot of words on a slide. I apologize. And I'm not going to be able to go deeply into all of these. But as we do, notice the characteristics of good shepherding. Verse 2 and verse 11, we see Jesus says that a good shepherd is a shepherd. This is who he or she is. This is their identity that is pouring out. This isn't, um, they're not an imposter. They didn't come in through some other gate. They haven't usurped the position. At the end of this section, in verse 18, Jesus says that the Father commanded that he say these things. He was legitimately put in this position. This is who he is in his core. He is the shepherd. Comes in by the gate legitimately. Is this who we really are? I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. But verses 3 and verse 16 the sheep listen to him. If you've been in a Bible class, even around the Thanksgiving table, but let's keep it in the church context in a Bible class, and everyone's talking, giving their opinion, they're going back and forth, and then that one person in the back raises their hand, and they say, Ahem, and everybody just gets quiet and listens when that person is speaking. Why do we listen to that person? Respect them. Yeah, there's a wisdom there that we know comes from that person. The rabbis used to say that a guardian or a fence around wisdom is silence. Wisdom is born of silence. And there are some people in our congregations who begin with silence. They're not the ones talking all the time, but when they have something to say, the flock listens because they know those words produce life. Those words come from someplace holy. There's wisdom there, and that's a characteristic of being a good shepherd. They listen. He knows the name of all of his sheep, verses 3 and verses 14. Objectification. 
You want to overcome objectification, the first step in that is to know their name, at least know their name. If you're an elder in the church, if you have like a medium, moderate-sized church, if you were to go to the elementary school, Sunday school classroom and walk in there, could you name all those kids by name? Or would it be, you know, John and Susie's twins and Lakeisha and Javon's son? Do you really know their names? And the congregation gets so big, I realize that's unrealistic. But sometimes we're not even trying. It's like those are the kids or those are the old people or those are the visitors. Do you know their name? I mean, start there. Because if we don't even know names, you are on the track to what? Objectification. Not even realizing it. Not intentionally. And knows them. Verse 3, verse 14. He knows them. That means that shepherds aren't always in the boardroom. They're not always behind the pulpit. They're not always in the classroom. He knows them. Maybe in their home, doing activities together, in their lives. He knows them. And here's where it really gets interesting. They know him or her in verse 13. And that goes against everything you learned in seminary, right? Especially if you're a pulpit minister, never tell stories about yourself. Don't let them know everything about you. You're going to lose your gospel voice, that whole dual relationship. But here it's so fascinating. Jesus says they know him. There is wisdom in that. Maybe they don't need to know everything. But there is an openness. There's a transparency. He knows the sheep, and the sheep are welcome to know him, his heart, his struggles, who he is, the likes, dislikes. That means you're really in each other's lives. It means you're, you know, Bonhoeffer-esque, right? Doing life together. You're around tables. All these things are happening. You're willing to be open and transparent as a leader. That doesn't always translate from the business world. Next, he leads them. Verses 3 and 4. That sounds easy enough. He leads. Um, for some of us, it's harder to do that. Some of us have struggled with those voices in our head, some of that imposter syndrome. Uh, sometimes it's just laziness. Lead. Get out there and be the example and lead. Characteristic of good shepherding, says Jesus. Verse 16, he's the way for the sheep to be united. We need to be clear with this one, that the capital G, Good Shepherd Jesus, is our unity. The noun, his blood, is our unity. We cannot replace that. But we are the path for them to be united. And that's more than just looking out at the flock that is your flock, whether it's your twins or it is your entire congregation, your Sunday school class, and saying, oh, nobody's throwing grenades at each other. Nobody's throwing food at each other, so we're united. It's more than that. I think it's more intentional. Let me give you an example. Um, in my congregation, I ask them what they want to study in the adult Sunday morning class, and I usually teach that class. And they said, Romans. Like, shoot me in that. If any of you taught Romans, it's like the worst class. So hard. Like, okay, let's go. We're going to do Romans together. And uh, a wonderful thing about my congregation is they're very cerebral. They enjoy learning technical things, and they want to know it all. So we're studying, you know, the Pistus Christu debate, and we're studying penal substitutionary atonement versus Christus Victor. I mean, they want to go deep and all of that, and it's amazing. That's, that's wonderful. But another unique thing about my congregation is that they're not all Church of Christ. Only about half or born and raised Church of Christ. There's um, a bunch of nuns, N-O-N-E-S's. There's Pentecostal, there's Catholic, there's Lutheran, there's Methodist. We have all these different backgrounds together. And we're having these conversations about Pelagius and Augustine, you know, and original sin. And, and, th and soon enough, at the end of these classes, I can see that they are here and here. And here and here. And they're not yelling at each other. They're not angry. But you can tell at the end of the class that they feel universes away from each other. They're very separated. And this was a problem. And so now, at the end of every Romans class, we're still in it. We've been in Romans 6 on baptism for five weeks to tell you how Romans is going. But this is what they wanted to study. Um, so the end of every class, there's a slide that says, on this we agree. This we know to be true. 
And we spend the five minutes of every class there so that we leave united. I think this unity that Jesus is talking about that, that's characteristic of good shepherding is very intentional. Hearing the hearts of the people. Sometimes there's a lot of disunity underneath the surface, a lot of chaos that's not outward. There's a lot of internal chaos, and a good shepherd knows the sheep well enough to be attuned to that and to minister to that and to bring them into intentional unity. Uh, what else? They find pasture through him. Verse 9, food. I don't need to say much there other than if you're going to serve food, you have to be well-nourished yourself, right? If you're not in the Word, if you're not full of food, you don't have anything to offer. Three times Jesus says he's willing to die for those sheep. Not by coercion, not by obligation, willingly lay his life down for those sheep. It's so trite to say, but when you look out at that flock, are you willing to die for them? That one too. That kid in the youth group too. The woman who sits in the back corner, that member, willingly, without obligation or coercion, lay your life down for the sheep. Um, I'm going to pick up on that one more here with the hired hand. Let's look at the hired hand. Not nearly as much there. But the big thing, two big things to notice with the hired hand is that it's not who he is. And the hired hand I don't think means any harm, but shepherding is his day job. It's not his identity. It's not who he is. And if we look at shepherding in a big umbrella and then you have other little facets of shepherding, different, different types of it, sometimes there is a shepherd who's in the wrong sheep pen. It's not who they are. And those of you who are elders, you're really serving all these other lower shepherds. And when you see that misalignment, you can arrange that. You know, we, we can correct that. For example, I know a lot of women who are children's ministers. No, no, that's not true. I know a lot of women who are behaving in the role of children's ministry who are not children's ministers. That's not who they are. And you can fake it for a while. But it's not anything that brings life to sheep. It's not who you are. Um, I was in a church once that when they were um, ordaining or, or nominating deacons, they would have the, here's a list of things that we need filled. Here's the ministries we need filled. And here's the eligible people. And then they would get them all together. And it was almost like, like a raffle out of a hat. It was so random. Nobody spoke to say, what is your gifting? What is your calling? How can these things connect to each other? And you end up with shepherds in flocks that aren't who they are. And it can easily be, be rearranged. I got to give Nathan credit for that. Nathan the prophet, back, jumping back to David here. Remember the Bathsheba incident? Um, and Nathan goes to David to try to get him to understand the gravity of what he did wrong. And he tells him a parable. And what is that parable about? Sheep. Yeah, sheep. And David had been out of the pastures of sheep for a long time. But Nathan doesn't tell him a parable about concubines and candlesticks or the treasury. He tells him a parable about sheep because he knows that's who David is. That's the family business. That's his DNA. And David hears about sheep and it drops him to his knees. That's who a good shepherd is. That's their identity. Um, it says in verse 13 that the good, I'm sorry, the, the hired hand does not care for the sheep. So in contrast, the good shepherd does care for the sheep. And this goes back to Jesus being willing to lay his life down for the sheep. Do you really care? Do you guys know your Myers-Briggs personality type? I know the Enneagram, which I'm so not into, and I... You're going to kick me out for saying that out loud, but I'm just not an Enneagram person. Um, but I'm an INTJ. We don't feel much. Um, we're thinkers. We're systems people, INTJs. And my husband, he is an industrial organizational psych guy. So 
He would um, do a lot of personality tests and team building for like special forces teams, how to work together and discerning other teams and all this sort of thing. So I was um, the, the missions minister for foreign missions for a while at another congregation. And so I was training teams to go to Africa on short-term missions. And I had this team of about a dozen people. And so I said, Tim, can you do um, a personality assessment? Do an emotional IQ test, because he does a lot of that. Who's taken an emotional IQ test? Anybody? So helpful. You should do this in your leadership. You should do this in your churches. If you're on a team of any sort, take an emotional IQ test. Can you come in and do this for our team? Sure, no problem. Emotional IQ tests measure things like um, how much you ruminate on things, if you can let things go, if you're more aggressive or passive. They'll measure how well you read body language. They'll measure whether or not you really give a hoot about people, those types of things, your emotions, if you can read emotions in other people. So we do the test. And guess who scores in the red on empathy? One person, the fearless leader. Red on empathy? Like, that's a problem. And it killed me. Like, what do you do? And he's like, don't worry. And he's like, you shouldn't be surprised. Like, you're surprised by this? I'm like, I am. I thought I cared more. Um, but there's things you can do. And the reason I'm telling you this is because there's things you can do to correct these. If you're seeing deficiencies, you can even go online and work on empathy. They show you pictures. You know, this woman with an ice cream cone fallen on the floor, how do you think she feels? A, B, C, or D? You know, all these questions to go through. You can improve, and, and I worked really hard for a year on this. I put down my cell phone, one of my sons is back there, I'm like looking my kids in the eye, like I'm hearing you, tell me about your life, I wanna hear it, um, just listening. So I took this test again a year later, an emotional IQ test, and I was turquoise, not green, but I was turquoise on empathy. So so you can improve is why I'm telling you that, because a good shepherd really cares about the sheep, would lay his or her life down for the sheep. It's easy when you're in that boardroom or you're behind a pulpit to keep this safe distance, especially if your natural tendency is to be introverted or a thinker or a, an N, a big systems person. But that's not what good shepherds do. Jesus called me to task on that one. Still working on it. In the end, the hired hand avoids the danger, runs away and the sheep die. Same thing with the thief. When danger comes, he is the danger, actually, with the intent to destroy, the intent of dividing, the intent of doing harm. So, of course, with the thief, the sheep die. It's only under the care of the good shepherd that the sheep live. They don't live under the hired hand, even with best of intentions. They don't live under the thief. They only live with the good shepherd. I'm not going to spend time on the thief because I know that doesn't apply to anyone in here. I hope you haven't met many, if any, in your life. We're going to move on. That's not who we are. But when we're trying to be good shepherds, let's go from there. This is what we're trying to do. I think our problems lie in two areas, which I introduced before. One, we are too much sheep. We're lazy. We're comfortable. We're in a rut. Too much negative chatter in our head. We're too much sheep. You're just not getting out there and doing it. Or we're too much shepherd. And we don't think about this being a problem. I'm going to call it narcissistic shepherding. That's what I call it. And it's with the best of intentions. But it's overzealous shepherding. And it does not lead to life in the sheep. So how do we avoid being narcissistic shepherds? This is what I'm going to spend the rest of the time on. Because the solution to being too much sheep is usually get to work. Get in the right flock and get to work. Or get out of the business. Um, Narcissistic shepherding. I think the shepherd that had this figured out more than anybody else, and I know y'all came here to hear a professional this morning, but Babe the pig. If you have not seen Babe, this is good shepherding. This is a pig who knew he was a sheep. This is who I am. And the farmer, the good shepherd, knew it, recognized it, put him into that position legitimately, trained him, 
The pig got to know the sheep, even though the sheep were resistant, kept trying and trying and trying again. Learn their heart language. Remember that secret code? The, to your flock, your fleece, your clan, be true. Sheep, be true. Bah, ram, you. Like the sheep secret code. And they heard him and followed him everywhere he went through the little obstacle course. And here's the most important part. Babe didn't stop until he got to the feet of the farmer. That's where he stopped. And do you remember what the farmer said when Babe completed his mission? Right? That'll do, pig. That'll do. That's your well done, good and faithful servant moment. So often, with the best of intentions, we get there, we see these shepherds in the valleys clutching on to these sheep, and they're both about dead because they didn't make it to the shepherd. They got them to themselves. I call it the youth minister syndrome. Um, and they're not all this way, and there's lots of reasons for it. But so many of our kids graduate, and then they go to college, and they never step foot in church again. And very often the reason is because they fell in love with who? The youth minister. They got to know the youth minister. They didn't get to know Jesus. They got to know all the, the fun things of that youth group and fell in love with those kids, but not the ways of the Lord. And that youth minister was trying so hard and was even doing good things and not trying to do harm, but those last 10 steps of bringing the sheep to who? Jesus didn't happen. The sheep don't live that way. It's narcissistic shepherding even with the best of intentions. Because I mean, many we give a kidney if it would save one of those sheep. I would have done anything to bring my husband back to Jesus. We would go financially bankrupt if it would bring that sheep out of the jaws of that wolf on the hill. We would do anything, but none of those things are going to bring the sheep life. Not really. Jesus said no in that same passage, John 10. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and here's the key, and the authority to take it up again. That's no authority you have. That is no power you have. That is no ability any one of us have. He says, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it, how? Abundantly. You can't give that sheep eternal life. You can't give that sheep mercy that's new every morning. You can't give that sheep the peace that passes understanding and joy that strengthens. You can give them a kidney and a great sermon and a good class, and those are all means of grace. Those are great things. Do that. But it's not life abundantly. They have to get to Jesus. And if it's not even on our radar, we can miss it. So how do you know? Am I doing that? Here's some litmus tests. Am I a narcissistic shepherd? Probably not a question you thought you'd ask when you woke up this morning, right? Who's the hero of their rescue story? I've asked some people this who, who I know, tell me your salvation story. And it might not even be the one, you know, your first come to Jesus story, but those little salvation stories. Tell me a salvation story and listen to who the hero is of that story, whose name gets dropped. There was one time and it brought me to my knees, it was a lot of Tiffany. Tiffany heard me, and Tiffany was there, and Tiffany did this, and I'm so glad I know Tiffany. That should not make you smile. That's narcissistic shepherding. Who should be the hero? Yeah. Another question to ask is, are they able to follow Jesus' voice? And this is a process of discipleship, of course. They're going to grow into this. But are they learning how to hear Jesus through the written word, the living word, and the spoken word? Or are they learning your voice? It's turned into Mary has a little lamb who's following you wherever you go. When a new problem arises in their life, what's their first move? To pick up the phone and call you? To text you? Or are they learning to turn to prayer first, to turn to scripture first? Are they maturing in that? Or are you becoming their capital G good shepherd? It doesn't lead to life, not abundant life. The sheep end up dead in that situation. If that's you in some scenario, what can you do? From overzealous to good shepherding. 
duh, right? Model how to be a good sheep. Here's that tension again. You are both sheep and you are a shepherd. So model being a good sheep. Go back to John 10 and read it as a sheep this time instead of as a good shepherd. Because if you're going to Jesus and they're following you in those early stages of discipleship, they're going to get to Jesus too. Consult the good shepherd before shepherding. If you're in, in ministry, I see pulpit ministers here, some counselors, elders too, this, this happens too. Um, we call it the Sunday afternoon spread, the feast of phone calls that come on Sunday afternoon sometimes. Um, sometimes it's the middle of the night phone calls, the texts and the calls and the help, 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 help. What about this? What about that? What about this? And it, it's, it, can, it can be too tempting to just open up your mouth and let advice pour out. Um, I read this. I'm just going to give you this. But it's not coming from the Lord necessarily. So in our good shepherding, are we pausing to fast and to pray before we start offering this food? To make sure that it's from the Lord and not just from ourselves so that it leads to life abundantly. Being aware of that, intentionally stopping and saying, I'm not going to give you an answer right now. Can I call you back tomorrow? I want to go pray with the leadership team, and then we're going to call you in, and we want to pray over you, and we're going to seek peace in this situation. I'm not going to give you an answer right now. And people don't like that, and it's hard when you see the sheep, like, you know, that frantic chasing their tail, like, help, you know. But when we jump in to help, it can be destructive if it's not truly from the Lord. And finally, this is the hardest one, I think, heal, H-E-E-L, heal. Sometimes God says, go, go out on the rocks and the rills and go get that sheep. And sometimes God says, no, I've got that one. Like the case with my husband, for instance, I was not the shepherd that brought him back in. Most of that was God directly through a series of supernatural dreams, something I didn't even believe in at the time, some come to Jesus foxhole moments, AA, these are things that brought him back in, not me. And this is the part we hate the most, other good shepherds in training, not me. I don't get credit for this one, but I'm the one that cares the most. But God says, heal. You're too fat to fit in that hole, or you're not equipped to go up that mountain. I've got another shepherd in training I'm bringing in to rescue that sheep and they're going to get credit for it and it's going to happen their way and it's going to happen in their time really all his and we hate that don't we but being willing to heal is a way to move from being narcissistic shepherds to good shepherds i want to end this today yeah we got time i want to end with john 20. The way John writes his gospel, it's very poetic and it's very literary and, and he has a lot of foreshadowing and things are fulfilled later on in the book. So what John teaches in John 10 is fulfilled in John 20. You can't study John 10 if you don't study John 20. They go together. So what I'm going to do is read an excerpt from a sermon I preached a long time ago on John 20. And when I do that, I want you to hear these themes of good shepherding that come through in John 20, those characteristics you read about in John 10. I want you to listen for things like objectification, about knowing the sheep, about hearing the sheep by name, and listen for the one word I have not said yet that's so important but overused, and that's love. What do you hear about love here in John 20 and shepherding? And then we'll close out from there. Every word is ruminated in John. Every weave intentional. Themes come back around and symbols recur, sevens dance and metaphors collide. For example, in John 10:3, Jesus compares himself to a shepherd who calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. In the Hebrew Bible, God called a few people by name. He yelled, Abraham, to move one man from one city to another so he could become the father of nations. When a humble shepherd from a broken home paused to look twice at a bush burning in the wilderness, God shouted, Moses, Moses, 
And then there was that small boy whose very name means to hear God, who was awoken from his little boy dreams of stickball and spiders when God called Samuel. It's rare, was rare, but when God had big plans for people, revolutionary plans, shepherding plans, he calls them by name. Fast forward a thousand years and a woman goes on a walk in the darkness of an early Sunday morning in search of a dead man. John's account doesn't explain why this woman seeks Jesus' tomb, only that she sought it out so early in the morning it was still dark. Joseph of Arimathea had already prepared the body for burial, yet even so, any grieving person who has lost their lamb can imagine the scene. Here is a woman plundered by a fallen acacia tree of grief that is resting on her soul so heavily. She's not sleeping. She's wandering the streets of Jerusalem in the middle of the night, numb, empty, desperate, and then after wandering all night, the homing dove of the soul leads her to the tomb of the beloved, where she could at least collapse onto that cold stone that seals his body. Her fingertips could clutch the granite like a tombstone that encased him, and with the desperation of the blind to touch in order to see those fading memories, to smell grandfather's cologne as he walked into the room, and to hear the lullaby that mother sang when I was six, to taste the kiss clutching the tombstone until your fingers bleed the song of lament our fingers play on the keys of the words rest in peace yeah we can empathize with that desperate journey to the dead and those who are lost but as this woman reaches out in the night to grasp the stone to stable her sanity her hand meets air and she stumbles into the darkness there's nothing there to steady her it's as barren in that tomb as it is in her heart, and this realization breaks her in two. Frantic, she runs out into the night alone to tell the other disciples that the body is stolen, and then she goes back to the tomb, helpless, nowhere else to go. She seeks again for the body in the grave and collapses out of the hole of the wall and weeps. John 20, verse 11. Two angels, she is too soul-shattered to recognize, ask her why she's crying, and she answers in desperate monotone, because they have taken my Lord, and I don't know where to find him. This is a woman incapable of functioning because of separation from her good shepherd. She's driven to irrationality braving the first century night alone a woman in search of a dead body she's frantic for him the living him her heart is screaming to hear his voice remember her steps were set in the rhythm of his steps for years and now that those steps are swooshed from the sand she's having an impossible time figuring out how to take one step toward home all the men went home john 20 verse 10. then this woman nearly undone in a lineage of strong biblical daughters of second wives of Beautiful in form and fair maidens like Rachel turns around and gropes for God one more time. She implores of the gardener, tell me where you laid him and I'll go get him. I, a woman, will go get a three days dead, bloated body of a crucified man and haul him back to his proper place of rest. Just tell me where he is. But this incredible feat of emotional and physical strength isn't necessary because her Jesus, the good shepherd in gardener's clothing, cuts her grief with a word. Mary, not Mary, wife of John, not Mary, daughter of Elijah, not beautiful in form and fair, Mary. Not maiden, not woman, Mary. 
He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out, John 10, verse 3. Rabboni, she cries. The sheep know his voice, John 10, verse 4. She clung to him. Don't hold on to me, Jesus said to Mary. Go to my brothers and tell them, tell the brothers this broken hallelujah. Mary, you're the first sheep called out by name. Go feed the others. There will be one flock and one shepherd, John 10, 16. See, church, others may know you or the sheep in your charge as Annabelle's coach or John's adulterous wife, the guy with the red truck we call who fixes stuff. You know, the mom with the sick kid who sits in the third pew. Peers may sneer epithets about those struggling sheep, the dumb one, the ugly one, the pretty one. The thief's voice may be shouting in your soul, illegitimate, barren, the best, addict. The world may label the sheep you are charged to guide as the poor people, the elderly group, the millennials that meet on Tuesday nights, wounded warriors, or the women in the children's ministry. But family, the Good Shepherd knows your name, knows their names, knows them. And when Jesus calls a sheep out by name, he calls them into something extraordinary to be a sheep and to be a shepherd. So be a good one. It's who you are, legitimately who you are. By the power of God, you have been made competent as ministers of reconciliation. So own it. Don't be lazy in it. Give it everything you have, but no matter what, make sure you're leading those sheep to Jesus. That it's his voice they hear. That it's his voice they know is calling their name. That it's in his steps they're learning to walk. That it's to his feet they are carried so that they may not only have life, but that they might have it abundantly. This is the good shepherd we worship. And what an honor it is to be in that fold. What an honor to be called into the responsibility of shepherding. And I pray that you've gained some insights this afternoon on how to do that well, how to do that better, not to be lazy, not to be narcissistic, not to be objectifying, but to be humble and brave at the same time. If you don't mind, I'd like to end our session reciting the 23rd Psalm. So if you would stand, let's hear this, ruminate it, let it plant within us as those who are sheep and those who are simultaneously shepherds. Your part is in blue. It's difficult to see. Most of us probably know it. If you don't listen, wisdom is born of silence, right? The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, for you are with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You may be seated. Uh, we do have about 10 minutes if there's any questions. I can field those for you. Ideally about sheep and shepherding, but anything is fine. Yeah, Anne.
Yeah, you know we're a church plant, so things are a little wonky in that church plant world out of the typical. Um, but yes, I, um, one, I think one of the most crucial things that we do are spiritual disciplines. So um, from that world of spiritual formation, I use a lot of the Renovare material. And so I use Richard Foster's Six Streams. And it's not just those of us on the leadership team, but the entire congregation, because we're small. I'm a huge small church advocate, intentionally small church. Um, we, they, they, the entire church goes through that in groups of four to six, the six streams, which are holiness, evangelism, social justice, um, contemplative, charismatic, and incarnational, I believe. So uh, they, they learn that these are all six streams with the disciplines that go with them initiated by Jesus that lead us into balanced maturity as ministers of reconciliation. And so they're, they're shepherding people. And it helps them know, you know, hey, we're really heavy on social justice right now. And social justice without holiness is a cause without a Christ. So we need to balance these things out. And it just kind of brings them into that balance. So with the whole congregation equipped in spiritual disciplines, like we'll go to labyrinth walks, we'll do contemplative prayer, we'll do, we just did a hunger walk for social justice. We're doing disciplines across all six streams together. And I think that helps keep us rooted in the Good Shepherd. Does that answer your question? And, okay. Anything else? Yeah, as an introverted person, I had to be very intentional. I literally mark it on my calendar. I know that, and I have goals. I will call on the phone five people this week. I, I communicate with everyone in the congregation every week, but it's easier for me to do that via text, not show up at their house. Yeah, so I say I will pick up the phone and call five people this week. I will have coffee usually two, two a week. I will meet in person face-to-face -face two people this week. Um, make myself do that. And once I'm in it, a lot of you who are introverts, once you're in it, you love it and wish you did more of it. It's just kind of getting across that hurdle of doing it. So I mean, actually put it on the calendar and do it. Show up at their ball games. Um, show up at their houses. Invite people over for dinner. They really don't care if your house is clean. I've learned that. Yeah. Intentionality. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. How did I choose a name for my class? So Mike Cope, at like six months ahead of time, <laughs> contacts the speakers and asks for the title of the class. That's why sometimes you go to a class and, and it doesn't necessarily match what they talk about because you have to do this so far ahead of time to do that, which is fine. We love that. But um, there's a blurb on there that says, you know, write something catchy, write something that gets people's attention. But I mean, of course, this is the saying that you often hear for guns, right? Guns don't kill people people do. Um, but the only, that's, that is, to get serious about it, that is the resounding theme that came through for me from the text, the loudest, is the sheep only lived under the care of the good shepherd, not even the well-intended hired hand. The sheep only live under the good shepherd. Um, and that was humbling for me to realize. And really caring is crucial to that. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Have a wonderful day. And thank you for sharing this time with me.